it looks like what GM and Cruise are doing is, and, and Honda, is trying to build the McDonald's of mobility. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer, the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy of the uh, Human Driving Association and um, sometimes from Argo AI. <laughs> and I'm Kirsten Korosek with TechCrunch. So this week, I think we need to talk about Cruise and its new vehicle origin. Before you do that, let's just be clear. I'm what? representing myself, Alex Roy, my personal opinions. And I do not represent Argo AI. Please continue, Kirsten. Okay. I also represent myself. I'm not going to say who I represent. I like to say, I like to keep it mysterious. Of big oil and uh, traditional car manufacturers? Some have speculated. Let's let Kirsten do her thing because she's the credible one. Right. Well, all I'm going to do is describe what a cruise origin is. So, Cruise uh, last week in San Francisco had a big flashy presentation, an event with mostly its um, employees and as, as well as some media. And I was there, Ed was there, and this vehicle that they showed is electric. It is autonomous. Is it autonomous today? Well, designed to be autonomous, right? Yeah. We didn't see it driving, so this is, this is how their description is. Uh, and they, they describe it as driverless, production-ready driverless vehicles. So that means no steering wheel, no pedals. It looks like a shuttle. And it's designed for sharing, so ride sharing. Uh, and that was about it. And so I'm really curious about what Alex's opinions were and Ed's, because Ed and I were there. Alex was not. So Alex represents the viewpoint, I think, of folks who might have been tuning in on the live stream and, and sort of what it seemed like, like, did it get you super excited, Alex, about the future or were you let down? All right. Reiterating that I represent myself and only myself. Um, look, it's uh, it's a cool vehicle. I mean, it kind of, it's like, I, I'm a little baffled by the use case because if you, if you, Look at like a Waymo, you know, you've got, you see a vehicle that can drive more than 35 miles an hour and could theoretically do highway driving. Um, if you look at like a Navia shuttle, which is, you know, you know, low volume custom built thing, you've got a low speed shuttle and you've got this cruise origin, which is, has no steering wheel, but, uh, and, but appears designed for primarily urban environments or closed, closed environments, um, at low speed. Uh, and so building for scale, like where, how are you going to get this thing on the road in places where you might want to say, take a robotaxi from the city to an airport? So um, before Ed jumps in and gives his impression, I will say this is, and Ed, you're probably going to follow on with on this, but this was the big issue, I think, between what people saw online if they were watching and what they heard after the presentation if they were on the ground. And that low speed question was answered, but it was answered in a scrum, essentially like a bunch of reporters gathered around Dan Ammon. What's the answer? It is designed for highway speeds. That thing is going to go 55 miles an hour? And it was asked twice. Uh, It was asked initially, and then a couple eyebrows were raised and said, what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean in terms of speed? And he said, highway speeds. Hmm. But here's the thing. 
the presentation didn't cover any of that. So it leaves people, even really well-informed people like Alex, kind of wondering, like, how is this even going to work, right? Uh, Ed, would you agree? Uh, definitely. Yeah. No, it's been it's been fascinating to see this disconnect between people who are there and people who are watching remotely because almost everybody who watched it remotely came away from it thinking that this was a low speed shuttle that like, like Navia and, and um, Easy Mile and May Mobility were all the companies that were sort of like and their products were sort of compared to this. Um, and honestly, even from, you know, when the vehicle was up on stage and we were down in the sort of audience watching, um, I, I kind of had a bit of that impression as well. It wasn't until I really sat in the vehicle that I realized, no, this is a this is a robo taxi. Um, the interior space reminds me of like the London Electric Vehicle Company. Um, they're sort of reimagined electric uh, London black cab, or the uh, the to- Toyota. Uh, JPN taxi, uh, which also is just sort of a big, flexible open space with facing seating uh, and a big, wide sort of flexible door um, uh, with a big, wide open space to to get it, you know, baggage and all kinds of things in and out. Um, so yeah, like this is, um, you know, Cruise has said and and they reaffirmed this that that they plan on offering a robo taxi mobility service essentially, and this will be the 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 foundation of that. Um, I do see actually actually the the comparison to Waymo is kind of interesting because so far Waymo has only shown f- vehicles that were not designed for the robo taxi uh, a business sort of from ground up they're they're privately owned traditional vehicles that have been retrofitted for that for that duty and so this is one of the first vehicles that we've seen that's designed from the ground up to be a robo taxi and for me. Um, not just sitting in the vehicle, but also taking. And, and I agree, by the way, that the event itself did a poor job of. And, and it's actually even taken me like a week to really sift through all my uh, views on 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 this and and what it means and how it all comes together. But I think it does come together because it kind of shows sort of um, how Cruise for the first time how they're thinking about uh, this cruise mobility service, and um, it's actually starting to make a little sense to me. Well, before you tell us why it makes sense, do you think? You know, when you bring up the Waymo thing, and, and to me, it's, I wonder if it's maybe unfairly, I don't know, but is it an indication of the readiness of the program of Waymo compared to Cruise? So is this a distraction, the Cruise vehicle? Because all the attention is now on this vehicle that if you look at another announcement that was made, this this actually just today, Monday, ahead of, you know, our listeners, um, was GM's plan to invest about $3 billion into, um, into electric and autonomous vehicle production. And the bulk of that is going to go to, uh, the Detroit, um, Hamtramck plant. Yeah. And it's the first vehicle is going to be an electric pickup. The second is going to be the origin, which would put production at the earliest at 2022. Yeah. So are you saying that there's no universe in which Cruise could ever have launched service in 2019? Um, no, they could have with, with with their bolts, right? Like like um, like Waymo is doing with their development Pacificas, right? Those mm-hmm. are those are development vehicles. They're not designed for the the service per se. Right. I, I I guess I'm still working this out in my own mind, but why why show it now? I guess why not? I, I can tell you why show it now. It's very obvious. You're making a movie. The movie's supposed to come out in December of 2019. It's amazing. The budget is huge. And it's not ready. 
So you wheel out uh, a few months later, you wheel out your actors to do a little press tour. That's that's what Cruz is doing here. Look, they're not the only ones to, you know, um, delay their launch of their level four, you know, autonomous vehicle service. And so they've got to do something because SoftBank is into Cruise for a lot of money. Um, Cruise has raised a lot of money and there's, they're spending a lot of money. They've got to do something to stay in the news. They've got to look like they, they need a media win. And so if your thing doesn't actually work, you've got to show a car. And the car itself, I mean, the merits, the business case around that vehicle remains to be seen. But if there is a business case, the vehicle's cool. Um, but this is spectacle. It's like when Francis Ford Coppola, when it's, people say Apocalypse Now is going to suck. And he's like, yeah, but these battle scenes are amazing. Let me show you some battle scenes. Um, and um, you know, you, they need to buy time to satisfy investors. So, I mean, they, this vehicle has been, I think they, they said at the, at the event that it's been three years in the making. So That's really interesting timing because they, they've been working on this vehicle for three years. But I thought this was a collaboration with GM and Honda. And Honda's investment didn't come in until l- way later. Are you suggesting it's this are a PR, a PR thing, Kirsten? Is that no, your analysis? I, I don't know. I'm actually just wondering if Honda uh, was just a latecomer into this. Because I I saw its fingerprints all over that vehicle. Um, or if you put a Honda badge on it and it off, make perfect sense. But I, I wonder if they had been working with them on the vehicle prior to like deciding to publicly announce. I don't know. Just kind of an interesting little moment on the timeline of when that investment come in. Here's a theory: Honda. This thing looks like a Honda concept. Honda is working this concept for years. Cruise is working on stuff for years. Cruz needs a win, calls their investor and says, bring in that thing you've got that we've been talking about for years. Let's throw a Cruz name on it. Yeah. So, so, okay. So there's a reason it looks like a Honda. And so we should clarify that, right? So, so the skateboard, right? Electric vehicle skateboard. So the drivetrain, the battery, the chassis, that's all GM. That's their third generation battery electric vehicle platform that, as Kirsten mentioned earlier, will also be, uh, you know, underneath a, w- a wide range of, of GM electric vehicles. Um, Honda and GM, so, so not only is Honda an investor in Cruise, but Honda and GM have a partnership on electric vehicle stuff too. So that's right. I forgot. The top hat of this vehicle, um, which is the essentially the body and the interior, um, the the stuff that you see, it was mostly the you know it was all collaboration, but the design was definitely led by by Honda engineers. From what I hear, actually working at General Motors, which is really interesting. So the relationship here between this three-way relationship between Honda, GM, and and Cruise is is really interesting. Um, it's why it looks like a Honda, but also um, I, you know this is this is to me one of the actually interesting things about this that that does signal sort of where this is all going, and which is why this wasn't a waste for me this reveal. Um, and and that is you know. The price point, right? And and this was not very strongly emphasized during the presentation. A lot of people have overlooked it, but um, they, you know, uh, I think it was Dan Ammon showed um, a Tesla Model X and said that you know this vehicle would be about half the price of um, an electric SUV without naming the X specifically. Um, assuming that that you know what went on said there, um, that would put the price point of of this you know sort of around forty to fifty thousand dollars. Let's call it. Which for um, a fully, you know, sensor-clad, autonomous, you know, electric vehicle, uh, that's really ambitious. Uh, when I asked about that that price point, they said, you know, scale was going to be important to 
to achieving that. And obviously, with robo-taxi fleets, scale is hard to achieve versus a car that you can potentially sell to markets all around the world. However, you know they're achieving scale in a number of different ways here, and um, and and they're achieving scale-like effects a number of different ways here to get the price down. One of which is that this platform will be underneath a bunch of other vehicles that theoretically will be sold at at much higher scale than than this vehicle will be built at. So that gives scale to all the um, you know the drive components of it, uh, and then and then the cost of development itself was spread, you know, between GM and and Honda, um, and so. So you're seeing cost spread across multiple companies. You're seeing the cost of the of the drive um, platform uh, spread across multiple multiple units, and and then and that's what's helping them get theoretically. And again, I, I you know this has not been proven that they will actually be able to achieve this. But if this thing it does get to forty fifty thousand dollars, um, it's a very uh, interesting dynamic. I don't think people are pricing. These vehicles at, at those levels in the models that they're making about how the that unit economics of ride hailing will work, um, and so I'm very curious to hear from folks who are looking at this on and modeling this out on the finance side to see if you know how does that change, you know the the potential business of, of ride hailing, which autonomous ride hailing, you know the the business part of that has been, you know, people have become a little skeptical of that recently, but again it's because the assumption is is that the cost wouldn't be able to be be driven down to the point that the GM and Cruise and Honda are talking about here. Well, I'm always skeptical when when uh, I get numbers thrown around with a- actual numbers. So it's just like half or revenue improved by twenty percent, or you know, unless you have a baseline, and which wasn't really provided. Did Cruz give any information, other any dimensions, any performance, anything at all? No. Yeah, it was very sparse. That was that was really one of the the problems with this. Like like some people expected a, you know, a city or a timeline or or some like big picture announcements and were disappointed that that didn't come. I don't care about like I didn't expect any of that. What I did expect was a lot more like details and and facts about this vehicle and from the sensor suite to the battery to the dimensions to the drive like up yeah. and down like no details on anything and that was a big disappointment to me. Yeah, I mean, I again, timelines I I um becoming i've always been skeptical of timelines but at this point even when a company says a timeline unless it's close enough to for them uh, when it comes down to like a production but a launch timeline those are almost always unbelievable because um so many things can happen that can disrupt those timelines that they just don't have the same level of importance to me anymore so like ed i wasn't really looking for the timeline part i mean i was interested in some pieces but I think that it like they suffered a communications breakdown in a in a way because it's like this idea that they need to like trickle out the news and save some stuff and like trickle it out over a year. And it really just creates frustration <laughs> when you don't have the answers to your questions. Um and and that like, for example, I asked where where was this vehicle going to be built? When was it going to be built? And I was told to stay tuned for a couple of days. Yeah. And then GM announced a few days later that it was going to be building it at, you know, the the specific plant in the Detroit area. So so you know, I'm sure we'll some of these answers will come. But yeah, the biggest issue for me was lack of details on specs, including even just questions about this owl unit. Um, we got to see how it worked. What's an it, owl unit? 
Yeah. They have a dedicated team because I heard them at the event being described as the owl team. Um, and these are the people who have been on the hardware development side of this um, sensor, but I th- believe it's a combination of radar and, and a camera. And they're on With thermal. I think there's thermal capabilities. Veneer, uh, actually, Veneer posted something uh, on their LinkedIn about having a thermal sensor on the vehicle. Oh, okay. So that's, again, wouldn't that be interesting information to have known at the event and not have to like go into LinkedIn, which by the way, I think Alex is the only one who reads LinkedIn. (laughs) Well, guys, (laughs) let's give this some context. All right. You have these Tesla people who think you could deploy an autonomous vehicle level four or above using camera and radar. You have pretty much everyone else in the sector, meaning the credible people, including former heads of Tesla Autopilot, Sterling Anderson and Aurora, and Argo and everybody else and crews saying you need camera, radar, and LIDAR. Right. And then you had a few people like myself years ago saying, wow, wouldn't thermal be cool because I used it on my Cannonball Run Drive. Mm-hmm. And our friends at FLIR, who were guests on our show, um, have now apparently made some headway and have moved some thermal units uh, represented by Vianeer, the Tier 1, uh, onto this cruise vehicle. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to my original point about this event being a PR spectacle because Cruise has to, you know, make nice and satisfy investors and may probably raise more money. Um, the use of a thermal sensor on an autonomous vehicle, to me, is actually a pretty big deal. If you call it a spectacle, do you think that it is not going to happen then? Or do you just think that it is going to happen, but they probably showed this far too early than they really needed to because they wanted to generate, like... They showed it... Yeah, they show, of course they showed it too early, but they needed a, you know, a comms win um, since they punted on their launch of end of last year. Right. And so wheel out, wheel out the toy. I'm trying to figure out if when, what you mean by spectacle, because sometimes like when I when someone says spectacle to me, then I think it's complete theater and it's never going to happen. Listen, there are some great Broadway shows that are big spectacles. OK, so you think it'll happen and just that it's far too early than necessary. When you say it. The and it will, the and it will happen. Each of those are <laughs> terms. <laughs> um, there is a vehicle. Um, at, you know, in order for it to happen, that vehicle needs to a have an autonomous, uh, so you know, autonomous software in it that works. B, it's got a, there needs to be a business case that makes sense, and needs to be you know they need to deploy them, and there needs to be customers. A lot has to happen for any of this to work. In the same way that. You know, and I, I would hold any company, including uh, Argo, to the same standard. A lot has to happen to make an autonomous uh, robotaxi business work. Yeah, and and part part of this, just really quick, is that like the lack of detail on the sensor part, right? If they want us to believe that forty fifty thousand dollar price point, which I do want to believe, um, because I think it makes the the business like their business vision makes sense to me. You know what? What sensors are they doing? So if they're putting together this huge hardware team, as Kirsten has reported, and they're doing these custom sensors that like move, you know, and track things independently, and like very sophisticated-looking stuff, uh, rather than just buying a bunch of stuff from suppliers and, and leveraging their scale to get the price down, right? Like that story becomes more complicated by putting custom sensors on this thing, and and then not telling us about it makes me. That's the part of this that makes me wonder, like. Are they actually going to be able to get this this custom you know again custom vehicle custom sensors uh, in house hardware like are they actually going to be able to get that down to forty fifty thousand dollars like that's and I'm not saying they can't I'm saying we need more information that we're not getting right now to know 
or to so have a, my, even a 10. My, I think pretty well educated guess, and and based on a couple of things that I've heard since then, is that they have actually not necessarily completely sorted out what sensors they're going to use. Um, the same day as they unveil, actually, a story about the hardware team and sort of what they're doing over there, and. Um, they are very clearly throwing bodies at this. Um, they're investing lots of money into hiring a huge hardware team. And I, I know that AV companies have hardware engineers. I mean, there's, there's an important uh, role there. They're, they have at least 300, if not more, hardware engineers now. And the plan is to dedicate the entire Bryant Street building, which um, that's where Cruise Headquarters was. Uh, and now that's going to be completely dedicated to hardware. That is um, kind of amazing because when I went there back in October, it was just in the basement. So it, it, it's 140,000 square foot building. Now that's all theoretics. Like, will they fill the building? Who knows? But if they do do that, to me, it shows that they are really trying to do a lot in house and and probably looking for a lot of partners. Probably not completely sorted out what is the best tech to get that price point down? So the lack of details is more indicative of that they haven't figured out that piece yet. Greetings, Atana Cat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. Thanks. Whoa. Hold on, Kirsten. Yeah. The best tech to bring that to bring the price point down clearly was the guy who decided that the bench seat would be like a Flintstones car. Tell you sat on that thing. You cannot tell me that that, sh- that seat was comfortable. Oh, no, it, it was. was fun. See, here's the thing. I, I was laughing a little bit about some of the folks who weren't there who were commenting and they're like, that's so ugly. And I'm like, show me an, or like, that's not innovative enough. And I'm like, what is left to do? It's a shuttle. Like what, how, how do you want to be innovative with the shuttle thing? Like it just is a waste of time. It's not a shuttle, though, guys. It's not a shuttle. It's not a shuttle. Uh, it, it is not a. Sh- I mean, okay. I guess it depends, right? We're gonna get into a, like a. It's van time. Like, is it a van? Question. No. Look, it's a. It's a robo. It's a taxi. Okay. Like, it's. It's. It can fit up to six people, but really, it's really built for like four people. Uh, let me give you another weird observation about that thing. Is it? It is clearly designed uh, on the assumption that it is a four season vehicle in San Francisco because there's no steering wheel. So if weather gets bad enough that um, a, uh, a human would be required, you cannot put a human driver into that thing. Right. Sure. So a a very big decision was made, which is that this thing is going to be deployed when it can do four seasons, including 
heavy rain because right. if people are reliant on it and it starts to rain, it's that thing still has to show up. Right. Or, or, um, what I think is more likely to happen is that this is my prediction for how this is all going to go down. You ready? Badly. Okay. No, not necessarily, but the way it's going to go down is that they're still committed to this, uh, Chevy EV bolt, um, with not the driverless version, but their generation three, that's going to be the first vehicles to deploy in San Francisco. This is where they've said, then as they uh, two years from now, when they finally get this cruise origin off the ground, first, it's going to be having been tested at the corporate campuses of GM and Honda, and maybe some others close private roads, get that thing down, and it will operate like a shuttle, like a low speed shuttle until they figure it out. And then when they eventually bring it to San Francisco, it will be not used all the time during heavy weather. And instead, they will continue to use and rely upon the EV bolt. Because they're in the beginning, I think that they will be overly cautious. They will put it out in the, um, or not maybe not cautious enough, but but they will put it out in the best environment, the best chance for it to be successful. And they will supplement it with their uh, Chevy Bolt EVs. That's how I think it will that the mix will go down. Yeah. Cynical me. Um, I, I appreciate the clean, you know, ground up design, the skateboard, everything. But if that thing is going to be moving more than 35 miles an hour, but let's say it's going highway speeds. Mm-hmm. If you look at the seating, you got one set of people on one side are facing in the direction of travel. The other people on the other side are not facing the direction of travel like a train. Yeah. Um, there is no universe in which I want to be sitting with my back um, facing away from the direction of travel with a few inches between me and whatever one might hit. That's just me. Yeah, there's a good foot on either side. And and um, there were there was like a display in, on the interior that suggested there were a lot of airbags in this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not, you know, typically, I feel like I'm able to sort of identify where airbags are located in, in a, a new vehicle. Um, I did not, it was not obvious to me where those those were actually located. Another thing that that GM hopefully will or, or Cruise rather will will hopefully share more information about because obviously super important um, the safety part of that, right? The highway sp- I just I just don't buy in the near term. Technically, maybe it's resolvable, but culturally, I think we are. It's going to be a while before people want to have be sitting train style with so little distance and um, to the edge of the vehicle. You know what they will do it for though? They'll do it if it's a fixed route. I think humans will will would do it if it was a fixed route, which of course would be like, well then why not have a train or a bus or whatever? Mm. But but I I think if they were um I'm not saying people would use it because it wouldn't be dynamic, but in terms of like we're used to these like slower moving shuttles that go on a fixed route and Guys, guys, it's San Francisco. How, how, what was, what's the fastest you've driven in San Francisco? Like, I think it needs to be highway speed to maybe like do, yeah, to do the SFO run for sure. Um, you know, get across the bridge. Also, by the way, like the, the highway speed thing here, what's important about that is not that it's like a great product at highway speed, because again, that's not certainly in San Francisco, it's not going to be, you know, a very, it's going to be like a 1% to 5% use case, um, uh, uh, situation. Um, what's important about the about the high speed versus low speed thing is that is regulatory, right? And and that is a, a big question about this vehicle, right? And and all GM said was like, you know, discussion or Dan Ammon said discussions with NITS are ongoing or something like that. Um, so that but that's like a huge hurdle that they have to solve with this. And until they do, 
as Kirsten said, it, it's going to be pretty much relegated to uh, to to not public roads, right? So to campuses and, and where we'll kind of effectively have to operate as a shuttle. But but as a as a robo taxi in San Francisco and other dense cities like that, how great it is at fifty five plus or even forty five plus it is relatively minor. Like they can have a viable business theoretically uh, with you know going going over forty five miles per hour. Maybe like I say five percent, maybe ten percent. Let's say at the the margin. What's very interesting is if you go back to our conversation with uh, John Krafchick, the CEO of Waymo, um, and his notion that there might be a subscription model for an individual to have their own autonomous vehicle, and mm-hmm. and Waymo's you know op, uh, coming out of the gate with these um, level four Chrysler Pacifica. So you have a form factor of a minivan similar to what you know, basically people use, many people own today, um, with a new business model, which is that you could subscribe to it. Uh, it's sitting in your driveway, it's yours to use, and then at some point at the expiration of your lease, it goes back to Waymo. And whereas you have Cruise here showing the origin and a company like Zooks, and you know both these companies building a ground-up-from-scratch vehicle specifically designed to be a robo-taxi. So there's really, the more interesting thing here isn't the vehicle, but it's the business model that the vehicle is now binds the company to. Mm-hmm. Zooks, building a you know bi-directional vehicle and this thing which could be bi- bi-directional um, meaning it goes in both way both directions you know these are vehicles that you're not going to want to privately own um, uh, and which are not designed for to carry luggage in the current configuration well, I guess you could throw luggage in the middle of the origin and so they are very much bound to the, to the business models um, that the, these vehicles have to um, fit into and vice versa whereas Waymo and I guess and Argo, I suppose to some extent, and uh, well, I can't. I can't speak for any other companies. Um, are just building the stacks and are totally agnostic as to what vehicles they go into. As long as the autonomy software and hardware works, you can put it in any vehicle. Um, and uh, and I'm going to venture. And this is again just me talking. I don't speak for Argo or anyone else. I'm going to venture to guess that the the first generation or the first successful business model deployed here, and I mean successful at scale, is going to use vehicles that are evolutionary, not revolutionary. Um, and we haven't even gotten to the fact that this thing is electric, which as opposed to gas or hybrid, which um, then locks crews into a business model and a vehicle that must, must, must be designed for routing and around recharging. It has yeah. to Right. It also means that if they want to do something at scale, and they already have, I think, like the largest charging hub around, like that exists, in, like in the U.S. And a lot of a lot of real estate in San Francisco. <laughs> right. So, so again, the the real estate play is going to be important to understand here, um, and it and it also real estate chews up a lot of capital. Mm. So, I mean. <laughs> The short story, the short headline here is like Cruz is spending a shitload of money to nail one city, right? In one city, in one in one important city, but in one city, yeah. I, I really want to talk about the business model here because this is a really interesting part of this. And I, I think to me, and I think I think there's also the piece that that has been most overlooked about all of this um, was actually an answer to a question that we've discussed sort of a little bit here. We haven't really like taken it full on in a, in a whole episode. Um, but it's this question, at, and, and Dan Ammon actually gave like 
the best answer I've heard to this yet, which was really interesting to me. The question is, what does a robotaxi offer that Uber and Lyft can't offer today, right? That a, that a, a human-driven ride-hailing thing can't, can't offer. And, and I thought it was really interesting, even though you know, they came out and, and, and sort of put out a, a very ambitious and really interesting price point target for this vehicle. Um, Dan Ammon's answer to that question was not, it will be cheaper. Um, which is one of the assumptions that I think some pe- some have made. And certainly going back to Larry Burns's research, there's been some really ambitious uh, estimates or projections about what Robotaxi uh, per mile cost will be. And and yet there, I think there's some real problems with some of that, uh, those assumptions. What he said was, the answer was consistency. And when you get into that vehicle, it's it's clearly like it's not premium, it is. It looks simple, so I, I understand why people think it looks uncomfortable. It's comfortable, but it's also clearly been designed for use, for like heavy no duty use. No, and that's another really interesting, and and that gets into the difference between how Waymo is approaching the product development and how Cruise is. But before we get to that, I mean, it's it, yeah. So it's very simple. So it's not covered in screens. It's just it's simple material, micro antimicrobial materials. You know, it's it's basically designed in a way like a bus, which again is why I understand why people think it's a shuttle. But to me, what what you get when you talk about a, a an affordable vehicle, so like let's say roughly comparable to Uber or Lyft, or maybe slightly more expensive. But what Dan Ammon said this will offer is consistency, and and sitting in that vehicle. It, it, it didn't hit me at first. It's taking me some time to like stew on it, but basically, it looks like what GM and Cruise are doing is, and, and Honda is trying to build the McDonald's of mobility. In other words, something that it may not be the cheapest thing, um, but it will always be incredibly consistent. You'll get the same driver and you'll get the same vehicle, and that's something that you don't get with Uber and Lyft today. And even just in the week last week, being in the Bay Area and taking a lot of Lyft rides, right? Like the, that that variation. Sometimes you get a great driver and a great vehicle. Sometimes you get a mediocre driver and a great vehicle. Sometimes you get a great driver and a mediocre vehicle. And sometimes you get just terrible of both in, or, or either, uh, especially if you're sensitive to smells. But, um, you know, so this is going to offer consistency. This is going to be McDonald's. This is going to be a thing where... I, like, know, I like the Starbucks uh, analogy better. I'm sure that Cruz likes the Starbucks analogy better too. Because <laughs> you can charge a little bit more for those, you know, lattes than a, than a whatever. Dollar. But I... <laughs> But, but you, I, you, I wouldn't disagree. No, I'm just teasing Ed. So relax. I mean, either either example is fine. Like I, I the, aesthetically, like it felt more like a McDonald's than a Starbucks. And I don't mean I don't say it's a bad thing. Like I don't love McDonald's myself, but I understand why people do. And it's that, and they built a huge global business around this idea of consistency. Just mm-hmm. it's going to be clean. It's going to be well lit. Every the food is going to taste the same. Your experience is going to be the same. Whether you have it in you know, San Francisco or in, you know, Alma-Ati, you know, or, 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 or Tashkent or something, you know what I mean? Like wherever you go, that McDonald's experience is going to be the same. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the vision. And so, so there were a lot of, you know, you, you know, you can make criticism of the vehicle, although I I do think the vehicle is very interestingly and intelligently designed. You can definitely make some criticisms of their, of their, you know, the communication, how this event was run and everything. But for me, the value of this and why I don't think it was actually too early was because I think it is really important um, that because Cruise is not just building a, a stack, they're building a vehicle that's custom to them, or they're or they're helping design a vehicle, and they're offering the service themselves, which some of the other companies, as Alex mentioned, the companies that are just doing a stack, they're not going to have that consumer-facing service brand. And so I think Cruise does have to communicate more 
to the general public than other players in the space do. And they have to, of course, you know, communicate to their investors. And, and I think that this, we didn't know what Cruz's vision before this vehicle was for, for like how they see their competitive niche. And now I feel like I understand what their competitive niche is. And so by that standard, like this was all very successful, like despite you know some 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 less than ideal, some suboptimal, as Alex would say, uh, issues. So, any final words um, now that we? I mean, I, I just don't know if we can build off of anything beyond the McDonald's of of autonomy. Well, you're welcome. Uh, so, Alex, any any final closing thoughts about not just about Cruise, but um, you know, I do think that you you made something a really good point, which was your prediction that it, the first vehicles for successful models will be evolutionary um, as opposed to revolutionary in terms of the vehicle form factor. And so I guess the question is, is the cruise origin fall in the revolutionary category? I'm not sure. Yeah, the cruise um, origin is obviously revolutionary and that's, that's the problem mm-hmm. for sure. There's too many moving parts um, have to come together perfectly to deploy with that vehicle. Um, well, I think so. And what? I'm sorry. To 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 deploy successfully in the first generation. That me. That's my uh, opinion. Okay. Well, I'll close with this. Um, the consistency theme was um, maybe not super obvious when we were there, but but yeah, I think he brought it up a few times. And consistency, I think, is probably far more difficult to achieve than just deployment or even like a good user interface because uh, consistency has, <laughs> it has to be the same always. So um, that actually to me shows that they have a far, if that's really their goal, um, a far bigger hill to climb really to get there. You mean a far bigger yeah. cactus to swallow? <laughs> they do no, but they You'll do. They really need to go along with that analogy, but I appreciate yeah, I desert reference. I've, I've totally started using it. Um, they look. They no. They they have a lot to prove here, right? So so Cruise has a lot to prove on the technical side. Um, they have a lot to prove on the execution side, and and they have to prove that they can they can you know achieve the price points and things that they're claiming in this car. And and in order to build my confidence that they can do that, they need to start sharing a lot more information about what's really going on here, particularly in terms of the AV stack, their AV capabilities. They're using the term su- superhuman to describe it. Like that's not a that's not a measure of a of a an autonomous vehicle's capabilities. So they need to get more detailed in in order to build my trust and I think the, the public's trust, which is as we've discussed often, is like the most important thing about all this. I feel compelled to add one more thing here. Okay. Uh, a few days before the reveal of the vehicle you know, Kyle Vogt put out this com- column about why disengagements don't matter. I think we'd all, I mean, ev- pretty much any AV company will say the same thing, that disengagements don't matter. Well, actually, they do uh, because there are different types of disengagements. Um, that that column was clearly a bit of a defensive hedge uh, against the possibility that someone would remind um, everybody that the information published this pretty vicious story a few months ago about Cruz's disengagement problem. Um, you know, we then had a few days ago, Chris Ermson from Aurora publish his kind of response to Kyle's column about disengagement's not mattering. And, and Ermson tried to lay out their disengagement argument, uh, which is basically that simulation could solve everything. But the reality is 
autonomy is not, as the Tesla people would say, a silver bullet that solves all problems. At the end of the day, deploying autonomous vehicles is a business problem that requires a technological solution, leadership, timing, everything's got to go right. And it's an expensive, expensive proposition. So I wish Cruise the best, but I think this vehicle is one generation early. Hmm. Before it's time. Well, and and to me, one of the really like the fact that the business was the part where I got some clarity. I think, and and yet, even though they had a hard time, I had to kind of dig into what they were saying to to get that McDonald's of mobility take out of this thing. I think that shows another interesting problem that a lot of companies are struggling with right now. What you say is absolutely true, Alex. This is a business problem. The problem is, is that the space has been all of their communication has been focused on saving the world, saving lives, safety, all this like very high minded typical tech rhetoric. And what matters now, as you say, is actually the business. And I think that's a very hard communications pivot. And I think a lot of communications teams in the space are, this is just another thing that they're, they're struggling with. And this is already like one of the hardest spaces to, to do communications about and around. Cool. So well, good, thing we're, good thing we're here to, <laughs> to sort it all out for them. On that note, um, I'll leave it with this. In the pursuit of more information about Cruise, um, Cruise employees just, uh, Reach out to me anytime on Twitter at Kirsten Horizek. Would love to hear more details. And um, until next time, thanks for listening to the Atonicast. See you next week.